Welcome back to In the Margins. I'm your host, Aubrey Rutiano, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with writer, dramaturg, director, and researcher Sarah Siegel. Sarah's forthcoming novel, Murder All the Mode, is set in 1930s London and follows Lady Pamela Moore, columnist turned MI6 recruit, who is assigned to spy on Wallace Simpson and Edward VIII. I'm Sarah Siegel. I am the author of Murder a la Mode. Um, Pamela is a creation of mine that actually started as a character in a play. Um, she was, uh, her story was a strand in a play called World Enough in Time at the Park Theater in 2014. And then she had her own play, which is a one-woman show that I created with my collaborator, um, Rebecca Dunn, that was called Agent of Influence. That was on in 2016 and 2017. Um, my background is in theater making. I direct, I still work in theater, I write and dramaturg and do a little bit of filmmaking. Tell me a little bit more about Pamela and what inspired you to write her character and also what inspired you to write this story. I can't remember if it was my grandmother who told me directly or if it was something my grandmother had said to my mother and then my mother passed it on, but in 1936 when everything was going on between Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson uh, there was a blackout on the press in the UK because of an agreement between Downing Street and the Palace and Fleet Street but there was no press blackout in any other country in the world and so for instance in the United States people knew all about this but because of the lack of the kind of media channels and technology we ha- technology we have now um, p- people there wasn't a lot of passing information back and forth travel wasn't as common um, I, I suppose if someone picked up a newspaper um, that was a you know a foreign newspaper they would find out but my grandmother thought that it was kind of incredible that this was going on and she just thought it was suspicious she always had the um, suspicion that Wallace Simpson was some kind of government plant and it was because she's she was American that it was a collaboration between MI6 or MI5 and what was the sort of what came before that there was no CIA then but whoever kind of maybe the FBI or you know the the predecessors to the CIA because of um, Edward VIII's sympathies towards Germany which were already known by then and there are all these rumors about uh, collusion with the German embassy which was by then um, fascist and under the Hitler regime and that idea was kind of rolling around in my mind for a while And then when Brexit happened, I was already in the throes of writing the story, but I became more and more interested in British fascism and understanding the the right and the far right in this country and the history of it, because um, I think that the UK hasn't really dealt with their history in that period at all, because there is an idea of resting on the laurels of winning the Second World War, and there's a smugness to that, which I think is um, unhelpful. Um, and there is a there is a pretty strong um, right-wing and far-right movement in this country today, and it's it really reared its ugly head during Brexit. 
Um, and it's just continuing now. I mean, there was a man last year who attacked um, a, a camp for refugees on the south coast. You know, that stuff like this is happening more and more, and certainly government policy now is basically to refuse any kind of legal route to asylum, like full stop. Yeah, you know, it is kind of frightening how history really does repeat itself um, politically and even socially, um, you know, and how, how a lot of these things are not only recurring, but but happening kind of in an entirely new way. Um, and so, you know, when you were writing this, um, because Pamela's such a, a lighthearted and funny sort of character, how did you go about combining both, you know, these these really serious um, and important political issues of the 1930s alongside this more kind of humorous and and, and lighter side that you find in Pamela? I think um, because it started as a one-woman show and it was basically, it was a monologue, everything was told from her perspective and the way I developed that character was thinking about um, the kind of, uh, the tone of the time, this sort of Evelyn Waugh, Nancy Mitford-esque kind of tone that was sort of wry and funny and quippy and I was taking from various people from that period and their letters and their memoirs and their diaries and once I created that character then everything was seen through the lens of her perspective on the world and I think the earlier iterations of her were more removed and more naive and more superficial and actually as I've been working on the novel I've been able to deepen her intelligence and her awareness and her understanding and I've been thinking of her more like perhaps some of the women who went to work for Bletchley Park who were quite upper class and as some of them were better educated formally than others. Some of them just didn't have access to any formal education really. Um, But they were all really smart, very bored women. And so once I had those ingredients of intelligence, curiosity, boredom, but also that kind of 1930s humor and dryness, it's it's not easy, but then when you're dealing with all the kind of um, difficult stuff, it sort of makes it a little bit more palatable in a way. And I think it's also a perspective that we have today. You know, there were, it's not like everyone was completely aware of everything that was going on all the time in the 30s, and it's not like we are now. I mean, at any given moment, you might be flipping back and forth between, I don't know, your BBC News app and reading about what's happening in Ukraine, and then maybe you go back to Instagram and you look at a you know, like a Paris runway show or something. And that's probably no different than it was for people in that period. There was the kind of harsh reality of the terrible things that were happening all over the world. And then there was the escapism of, for them, um, things like probably magazines and Hollywood and maybe, maybe like popular theater or something like that. But I think it's about finding a balance between the truth of that period, a little bit of that humor of the period but also not I didn't I don't want to make the mistake of giving my characters the kind of 2020 hindsight we have now 
yeah, you know, it can be really difficult um, to maintain that, you know, historical authenticity, kind of without projecting your own opinions and beliefs and perspectives. Um, you know, so it'd be, I'm curious to know what it was like writing these, these, you know, these real people alongside your fictional characters. You know, we have Wallace Simpson and and Edward VIII um, and Princess Stephanie. Um, what was it like kind of immersing yourself um, in their world and and trying to write kind of from their perspective? Uh, yeah, it's, the, uh, I guess, writing anything historical is a double-edged sword of you have the benefit of research material. And I found the more I researched, the more doors it opened for me, which is part of the reason why I turned the play into a novel, because there was just so much there. And there's been more coming to light about Wallace and Edward um, in the past several years. And the more I read, the more I found out, and the kind of, the, the more horrified I was. And I was really interested in finding new angles to people that the public kind of might know about to some degree and then discovering other characters figures in history that people might not know about like you mentioned this woman princess stephanie who was she's absolutely bizarre she was um a spy for the germans she was i can't remember she was either german or austrian and she was Jewish, but she was a Nazi spy, and she was a kind of very, very, um, like a lot of the Nazis were, she was very ambitious and sharp-elbowed, and sort of willing to do anything to have a, a wealthy, comfortable life of status and privilege and power. Yeah, you know, I actually, I looked up Princess Stephanie because that was a name I wasn't familiar with. Um, and I did see that her family was from Austria, they were Jewish, and that she, um, in fact, was a German spy. And it did make me think about these characters, um, you know, who were real people and who did really horrific things. And, you know, while you're researching them and writing about them, do you find that you are surprised um you know, to have any sympathy for them or, or for some of the decisions they made or, you know, or the reasons that kind of informed those decisions? Um, I think, I mean, Wallace Simpson was an awful human being. <laughs> she was willing to sell anyone down the river, um, including the entire country of Britain, um, to get what she wanted. But... She she does, as far as I am aware, have a history of abuse from her first husband. There are some kind of terrible stories about him tying her to a bed and beating her up and abandoning her and leaving her for hours on end. And it just, there's some really damaging stuff in there. And it must have been terrible. I mean, it's abuse is terrible whatever era you're in, but then this is sort of around the period of World War One when she had no rights and no agency and couldn't vote. And there are some kind of interesting stories and speculation around the fact that she actually didn't want to leave her second husband and that she did love him, but she kind of got in over her head and Edward VIII had so much more power than she did and it all got a little murky and her her husband was seeing someone else and it's kind of hard to say what exactly happened but I mean I guess I have some level of sympathy for women in that era who who didn't have as much control over their lives as men did but 
at the end of the day, she was a fascist sympathizer who wrote things like, the, the British public deserves to be bombed because it's their punishment for having rejected me and my, my husband. Just sort of crazy. It is crazy. Um, and I'm sure you've uncovered some, some pretty harrowing details about these individuals' lives. Um, but what was maybe the most shocking thing you discovered during your research? Um, I think I hadn't realized the depths of the actual collaboration that Wallace and Edward had with the Germans. I, I knew that they were fascist sympathizers. I knew there was speculation around Wallace having had a possible affair with von Ribbentrop, who was the ambassador to Britain at the time. Um, you know, I knew they were terribly racist, anti-Semitic, whatever, but a lot of people in that period were. I mean, everybody was racist and anti-Semitic then. Um, and you read in the stuff you come across that sort of the casual racism in letters and, and documents and things. But it was when I came across the information around what they were doing when the war, so the war had already started and they were living in, they were living in France when the war started and then they came back to the UK and they kind of did little bits and bobs. But the thing that really shocked me was that they kind of, the palace gave, at that point he was the Duke of Windsor, a, like a little PR job for the war effort. Um, he had been in the military. It's kind of like something that you know, the royal family would have would give Prince Harry now. I mean, if he wasn't, you know, completely hadn't excommunicated himself, because um, he had been in the military in World War One. Um, they sent him off to the front lines. This is like 1939, beginning of 1940. This is before Dunkirk, and he was like some kind of diplomatic position where he was inspecting French defense lines um, with. French um, officers and kind of creating, strengthening that bond between the, the French and the British armies. But there is some thought that he was passing information to the Germans about weaknesses in the French defense, li defense mm -hmm. lines and that the Germans were able to break through when they did because of the information that he passed to them. Mm -hmm. um, when I read that, I was like, oh my God. That's far beyond anything I could have imagined. And that he kept colluding with them and sending them information, even when, kind of amazingly, even when he and Wallace were on the run from the invading German army, they had been in Paris, they were given an out, they were told, to, they were ordered by the palace in Westminster to go to England so they wouldn't be captured. Wallace was afraid to fly or something, and they, you know, they were they dithered, and then they set off at two in the morning and drove to the Spanish border, and then they ended up in Spain, and then they were the guests of the fascist Franco's fascist government in Spain, and then they were the guests of Salazar's fascist government in Portugal, and that whole time, well, they're on the run from the invading German army, like millions of other people were they were still colluding and they were writing to German high command trying to make deals with them around if you invade we'll be your puppet monarch so it's just really really dangerous nasty stuff admittedly i didn't know much about edward the 8th 
until I watched the first season of The Crown. And then um, I was quite interested in him and in Wallace Simpson and kind of this public perception that, you know, Wallace was kind of the catalyst um, for all of his subsequent kind of political dealings when when the reality is that that's not true at all. And um, I'd be curious to know if you think she did actually have any influence you know, over the direction that he kind of took his political loyalties and and kind of the, the fascist ideology, do you think he would have made the same decisions um, had they not become romantically involved? Probably. I mean, he had a real sympathy for the Germans that predated the war by a lot because he had been in World War One and he spoke German. Of course, the all the British, all the European royal families were related, so he had German cousins, and he, after like a lot of people, he had a lot of sympathy for Germany after the First World War because they had been so crippled, and um, the the German government was really punished by the Treaty of Versailles and the war reparations they had to pay back. I mean, there's a, certainly an argument that there may have, there may not have been a fascist government if there hadn't been war reparations, if they had, if France and uh, the U.S. and Britain had helped rebuild Germany and just had a kind of truce and had just completely crippled them with debt. You know, who knows how things would have turned out, um, but there wouldn't have been terrible inflation and terrible poverty. And I think a lot of people rightly so, did feel very bad for what had happened. But then all of that takes a turn when the Nazis, even before the Nazis come to power, the Nazis were around long before they came to power in the 20s. So, and there, and of course there is this um, fear, terrible, terrible fear of Bolshevism. So there was a lot of, there were a lot of people who thought, well, it's either the Nazis or the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks executed the Russian royal family. So probably safer to go with the Nazis, which is why there were so many upper-class fascists around, all around Europe. Um, But I mean, I think there was an, I mean, he certainly was not alone. There were a lot a lot of politicians and people who own newspapers and titans of industry and aristocrats who were anything from, you know, fascist curious to full-on paid-up Nazis. Mm -hmm. So Wallace or not, it'd be interesting to think what might have happened if she hadn't existed, you know, how, what would they have done with a fascist king on the throne when Britain went to war. It's really hard to say. But also, it's a scary thought to think what Britain, what would have happened if Britain had been invaded. Yeah. I'm under no illusions that they would be any exception to the rule of, you know, handing over Jews and communists and disabled people and queer people <laughs> and becoming a kind of you know, either a occupied country or a puppet state. I think anybody who thinks that they're just an exception is is fooling themselves. Yeah, it's really frightening to try to imagine, you know, what could have possibly happened. Um, but it's equally frightening to, to kind of think about people's warped perceptions of the war 
and kind of the way popular culture has romanticized um, kind of wartime life. Um, and it's especially fascinating um, for me as an American because I think um, kind of the perception of America's involvement in World War II is very different to the reality um, of America's involvement with World War II. So it, it is a strange thing how kind of the stories and, um, you know, the hardships and the realities become so skewed, you know, um, with younger generations. There's also rarer, it's the war in Europe is talked about far more frequently than the war, the Pacific fronts anything that happens in, I mean, the price that China paid mm. um, with the Japanese occupation, um, the price that all of those Asian countries paid and the, the horrors that were seen there. I mean, Britain was involved in that front, but that's never rarely discussed. Nobody talks about the Africa campaign. Um, people don't talk about the price that was paid by all of the Commonwealth countries and the colonies who sent resources and troops, whether willingly or unwillingly. People don't call up, talk about the Bengal famine. People don't talk about the, the, the massive role that Russia played in the war, the fact that Russia was an ally with Germany until 1941. I mean, there's just the understanding of the war is so selective. I mean, people are, I think, understand it in a, in a certain way and through a certain lens, and, and that's, that's it. And I think that the war is used as a, a like an aesthetic lens that mm. people see things through. Like you see a lot of productions and films and plays that are set, like, I don't know, there was a recent I want to say much ado about nothing at the Globe that I didn't see it, but it was set in Italy in 1945. And I had some students who went to see it, and I asked them, I said, do you, do you understand where Italy was in 1945? Do you understand they were occupied by the Allies and what they had been through and that they were part, there was partisan fighting and terrible hunger and poverty and, and bomb damage. And they were like, oh, well, it just looked really nice. And women were in these like nice dresses and victory rolls and red lipstick. And I just thought that's, that's just incredibly irresponsible um, to kind of use the war as a sort of superficial aesthetic choice. Yeah, you know, there are countless examples of this in, in film and in literature. Um, and I have to think that, you know, maybe what they're hoping to achieve is, is to draw attention to, you know, the, the kind of parallels between um, past and present and, and, you know, kind of how people are, as you said, forced to kind of get on with life and, and find those moments of, of joy and humor, even when, um, you know, when the world is kind of in, in such a state of despair. Um, I do wonder, you know, what what um, kind of contemporary um, political events, um, you know, were you kind of thinking about when you were working on this? And, and, and did you kind of notice any alarming or surprising kind of parallels or recurrent themes? Yeah, for sure. I was definitely, Brexit was a, a, an in, inspiration, if I can say inspiration. Kind of the Britain that I moved to in 2005 feels like a very different place than the one I live in now. Um, hostility towards migrants and rising anti-Semitism, rising Islamophobia, 
racist hate crimes and it yeah I mean it's sort of I, the the UK is certainly a much more diverse um, in an integrated country than it was in the 1930s um, but there are still lots of problems and problems of lack of education and problems of um, you know, the government uh, and it's the spin it puts on things it's it's not that they're defunding the NHS it's not that they're defunding social services or shutting down libraries or selling off playing fields of schools it's the fault of the EU we would have more money if we weren't paying money into the EU it's the fault of I mean the the immigrants are coming and taking your jobs is like the oldest line in the book it's about as old as like Jews control the media um, it's just all a bunch of nonsense and at the end of the day I don't I don't believe that anyone is like evil I don't think thinking about good versus evil is productive or useful. I think there's a lot to be said for things that are initially seem quite banal, like ambition. Um, I was doing some dramaturgy on a, a play that, that was sort of about the Holocaust a little bit, and I was talking to the creators about um, Hannah Arendt when she covered the the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem and she talks about the banality of evil and how a lot of the Nazi high command were just like very ambitious social climbers and corporate climbers and you couldn't really get anywhere unless you joined the Nazi party and then once you're in the Nazi party and you see an opportunity and a lot of people who were like quotes rescuers in the war and in the holocaust some of them were very good people and some of them were like Oscar Schindler who were using Jewish slave labor who then became very very good people but didn't start out as good people so I think people are just people and it's a, there's a danger in saying like oh these people are um, you know angels and then these other people are just evil I mean I think that's you know it's just human nature and greed and jealousy and you know if I denounce my neighbor maybe I'll get his house or his wife or his artwork or his furniture I mean I think there's a lot to be said for for greed and ambition and jealousy yeah and and, and as far as the royal family um if we can just talk about that for a minute um and, and how it existed in the 1930s and how it exists now um you know and, and any parallels between um, visibility and um, inner kind of relationships and the media. Um, I'd be curious to kind of get your opinion on it because I feel like you 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 know you have quite quite a good insight. Um, you know what are those parallels between um, now and then? Um, I think the royal the the royals have been within the same PR machine since the dawn of time. <laughs> I mean. I think certainly under someone like, I don't know, Henry VIII, it was probably a, a more honest, uh, the firm was a little more honest when they were just openly taking land and beheading people. I think this, there is a sort of, you know, there, there are plenty of people who are making comparisons between Meghan Markle and Wallace Simpson, and sure, they're both divorced American women. And they might, you might, you could say that they're both ambitious 
women, but I think ambition is often used as a real um, cudgel to, to beat women over the head with. I don't think ambition by itself is necessarily bad. Um, I don't necessarily have any real meaningful opinions about Meghan and Harry. I think it's laughable that she was surprised that the royal family was racist to her. I think that's, I'm, I'm not sure what that's about. She must have been the most naive person in the world if she really was surprised that they were racist. I do think they are probably quite racist. I don't know how they wouldn't be. Um, I think they are probably two people who kind of just wanted to have a life together, but that's probably pretty hard when you're in the royal family. Um, I'm not a royalist, as I'm sure people can guess from when they read the book. Um, I think it's a little crazy that taxpayer money goes to supporting one of the richest families in the world, but not the NHS. To, to you know, sure, taxpayer money goes to the NHS, but you know, why are there why are there people who can't heat their homes and can't feed their children and can't pay for petrol and have to like vacate their houses because they can't afford their mortgages anymore and we and but prince charles didn't pay like a death duty when his mother died it's it's you know whatever my own opinions about harry and meghan sure they're just to me they're just celebrities like if every member of the royal family took 100 million to write a tell all book and stop taking public money great that would be fantastic just you know go and live your dysfunctional lives and be wealthy and just leave everybody alone yeah and you know a lot of people would argue that the royal family um is is a tradition and that that's really what it represents and what would the uk be you know without that that tradition who knows but there are it's not like there are no models for a democracy that still has a monarchy that holds a purely symbolic um role i mean if you look at denmark norway sweden belgium spain and they're you know endless examples um that those monarchies you see them at events on the pages of hello they don't really and they may you know occasionally there's like somebody gets out on a balcony for a birthday or something but they don't hold that place of importance like they do in this country and i think you cannot be fully democratic egalitarian country if the aristocracy and the monarchy not only play a role in like it's not just a symbolic role it's a it's a role in the makeup of the country and and how power operates but also the 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 space that they take up in people's minds i think we will all be kind of perennial serfs if the royal family continues to be this important yeah yeah i agree um so I have one final question I'd like to ask you, and um, and it's kind of going back to the novel. Um, you know, if there is one thing um, you'd like each reader to take away um, once they've finished reading, what would that one thing be? I don't know. Just like history can, history is a series of stories. It's not. It's a. It's a. It's not rote fact it's a series of stories and I think that's an important thing 
to remember, and also that there are a lot of women who played important roles in history that we don't necessarily know about. Pamela is a fictional character, but she's certainly cobbled together from a lot of women who did exist. Um, and there are a lot of women in the book, good and bad, who, who did truly exist. And I think it's always important to try to look for those women. Um, women, people of color, queer people, Jews, Muslims, etc., etc. Remember the role that those people played in history. In the Margins is brought to you by Loom Books.